Well, we are continuing our series on meekness, but we're going to kind of make a little bit of a shift tonight. We've talked about several different ideas uh, about meekness, what it means, what it looks like. We've talked about that the meek, they patiently endure the present in light of the future, right? They, present, they endure the present in light of the future. They surrender their enemies to God. We've talked about the Hebrew word. We've talked about it probably more than you wanted to. The Hebrew word for meek is what? Anav, right? And the anav, uh, that word can also be translated, besides meek, also like poor or persecuted or afflicted. So the idea that the anav have enemies is inherent in the idea that they have people that are hurting them or situations that are hurting them. But the meek, in a biblical sense, are those who surrender their enemies to God. We've talked about things like they fully embrace the good news of God's reign, living as if future rewards are a present reality. But do you see how many times we've talked about these things, about suffering and persecution and poverty, but always, always when we're talking about meekness and we're talking about the blessings associated with meekness, it's not just about the present. Because there's no blessedness just in suffering, is there? And if we just said blessed are the meek, period, that, that sentence wouldn't make any sense. But that's not what Jesus said, and that's not what the psalmist said. Here's what Jesus said. Blessed are the meek for, and in this case, for there means because, right? So blessed are the meek because they shall inherit the earth, right? And that's what the psalmist says too. He says that the meek are blessed not, not just because they're meek. There's no blessing just in being meek. It's not blessed are you because you are meek, but blessed are the meek because they have an inheritance coming. Blessed are the meek because of the promises of God. Blessed are the meek even though they're meek, even though they're suffering, even though they're poor, even though they're afflicted, now in the present, they are blessed because of what's coming. In fact, if you go through all of the Beatitudes, they're all like that. And sometimes we forget that, I think. We, we talk about blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Whatever it is, it doesn't just stop right there. It's because they shall be called sons of God because they shall see God, because of all of these things, because of the future. You are blessed right now, which means something like happy or satisfied, or you are content, you have shalom, peace, fulfillment, contentment. You have the blessed life. You know, again, I always like to say, it's like when we look at somebody that's on a beach in a hammock, I I love hammocks, so I always think about a hammock, you know, if if you're in a hammock somewhere, some beautiful place, and then you look at that, and you're not there, you say, that's the life, right? That's the life. That's blessedness. You think, man, that's the life. The guy that gets to sit, or the gal that gets to sit in that hammock all day, and just read a book, and hang out, and listen to the waves come in, that's, that's the life. And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, that's not the life. The life is the life of the meek. (laughs) And you're like, come on, Jesus. I mean, really? The meek? Blessed are the poor in spirit? 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In Luke's account, it, it's even more stark than that. It's just like, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry, right? And it's not just because that's your current situation. If that's all there was, there would be no blessedness to it, right? If that's all there was, if it's just you're poor, you're afflicted, you're persecuted, you're slapped, you're pushed around, you're taken advantage of, you're manipulated, you're whatever, there would be no blessedness to that whatsoever. In everything we've talked about, in every passage, in every story, in every idea we've talked about meekness, it's always that someone can be meek, they can be gentle, they can endure the present reality, no matter how dark and difficult and challenging it may be, because of the future. We embrace our blessedness now in light of what's coming. We endure the present in light of the future. We embrace the good news of God's reign, living as if future hope or future reward is a present reality because it is. And we are sons and daughters of the kingdom now, even though we're living in a world in an age where it doesn't look like it. And again, it may be easy for us in our, you know, first world, in our comfortable world, to sort of pretend like it's all good, right? I mean, we've got a good life, yeah. I mean, for a very small percentage of the world's population, and even for a very small percentage of followers of Jesus. But when we think historically, and we think about what God's people have gone through, and how God's people have suffered and been persecuted, and even when we think presently, globally, how God's people still, how Christian people still continue to be persecuted, to be taken advantage of, to be the anav, those who are slapped on the cheek and turn and let them slap them on the other, those who go the extra mile, those who love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. And how can you say that those people are blessed? How can you look at that life and say, that's, that's the life? <laughs> I want to embrace that life. You know, how can you say that? Because of what is coming. And so that's what we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about is what is coming. What is the hope that we have? What, what, what should we picture? What should we think about when we think about what exactly is the hope of the anav, the hope of the meek? What does Jesus mean when he says, you are blessed now, you have the life now because you shall inherit the earth. What does Jesus mean by that? Let me ask you this. What is the ultimate, yeah, let's talk about that first. What is the ultimate form of meekness? Like the ultimate form of meekness. So if we say that the persecuted are meek or the, uh, the poor are meek, like what would be the ultimate form of that? Somebody who like, gives everything, right? Who dies, right? Who's a martyr. I think about passages like Hebrews chapter 11, 36 and 37. The whole chapter of Hebrews 11 talks about people who lived by faith and he ends the chapter by talking about those who suffered mocking, flogging, which is like being whipped, chains, imprisonment, and then he says stoned. 
Now, I mean, stop right there. When I pictured stoning when I was a kid, I pictured people like picking up like baseball, maybe softball-sized rocks and throwing it. But I've been told that it's more like they were pushed down into sort of a pit or, you know, into a central place. And the men who stoned them would pick up as big of a stone as they could possibly lift and hurl it down at them and, and crush them until they were dead. Sawn in two and killed with the sword. And Jesus looks at this group of people and he says, blessed are they. Blessed are they. Blessed are those who are mocked. Blessed are those who are flogged. Blessed are those who are in chains. Blessed are those who are in prison. Blessed are those who are stoned. Blessed are those who are sawn into. Blessed are those who are killed with the sword. Why? Well, the Hebrew writer says in verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Now, if we're going to understand what Jesus means by blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, then we have to to take some time, I believe, to focus on what is the biblical hope. And I think that we have a tendency in 21st century American Christianity, maybe I should even say Western Christianity, to think maybe not as biblically about this hope as, as we should because we don't talk a lot about resurrection. We don't talk a lot about what it means to rise again. The Hebrew writer says they were tortured and they refused to accept release. They refused to deny their Lord in order to be released. Why? Why would they say, no, torture me, kill me, saw me in half, stone me, kill me with the sword, crucify me, do whatever it is you're going to do to me, but I will not deny my Lord. Why did they do that? The Hebrew writer says, so that they might rise again. Now, let's look at the the pivotal text on resurrection, and it's 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to start in verse 12. So Corinth, just to give just a little bit of context, we're going to run out of time if I'm not careful because I'm going to read a lot. But in context, Paul is dealing with all kinds of problems in Corinth. I mean, tons of different problems. Divisions, uh, their Lord's Supper, he says, does more harm than good. Um, there's false teachers. There's sexual immorality going on in the church. There's all kinds of problems going on in the church. But one of the problems is that there's people saying there's not going to be a resurrection. And apparently some people in the church are starting to believe that. Now, I don't know what they thought about an afterlife. Most people in almost every culture believe in some sort of afterlife. Um, But one of the things that makes Christianity and Judaism unique is that we believe in a literal bodily resurrection. And that's always struck people as strange. It still strikes people as strange. It strikes a lot of Christians as strange. You start talking about resurrection, you're like, I could, I maybe can wrap my mind around going to heaven or something, but what are you talking about resurrection? You're talking about like literally like a body, like coming out of a grave. You're talking about God somehow putting the dust back together into my body and it walking out of a, out of a tomb. Is that what you're talking about? 
And the answer is yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. And that has struck a lot of people as a very strange idea. And apparently in Corinth, there were people saying, there's not going to be a bodily resurrection. And for Paul to deny the bodily resurrection, to deny that there will be a future resurrection of the dead, is tantamount to denying the faith. For Paul to say there's not going to be a bodily resurrection is pretty much to say everything you're doing is a waste of time and energy. There's no point in being a Christian. And that's what he'll go on to talk about. So verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Saying if if you say Jesus is raised from the dead, but there's not going to be like a general resurrection where everybody's raised from the dead, that doesn't make sense. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If you can't wrap your mind around a resurrection, then why do you proclaim that Jesus himself was raised? And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So I think one of the things that we're going to have to talk about, if we're going to talk about, like, do you mean like resurrection or do you mean just like, you know, they go to heaven, like they die and then they go to heaven and then they're with God in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. Or do you mean like a literal bodily resurrection? Well, I mean, the word resurrection, the Greek word anastasis, ana meaning again, literally means to stand again, to stand up again. And, and so Paul wouldn't use a word like resurrection for become a spirit and your spirit goes away and your body, you know, you never use it again. When he says resurrection, it literally means you will stand up again. You will be raised again. Okay, and then, and then again, let's keep going. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. So if you guys are starting to believe that there's no bodily resurrection, then I guess, and Paul's obviously being sarcastic here, you know, he's saying, then I guess all of us apostles, we're just lying and we're misrepresenting God because we've been telling you and we've been testifying and our entire faith is built on this idea of resurrection, that God has raised Jesus from the dead, but if the dead are not raised, verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people most, are most to be pitied. But in fact, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The, what's the word? First fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now this is another important word. Not only does he use the word resurrection, which means... You know, He's resurrection. It means stand up again. But, but he also uses this word first fruits. And, and first fruits means it, it's just like it sounds, right? If you go out, and I always use a garden because my parents had tomatoes. And, you know, if you go out into your tomato garden, tomato garden, tomato patch, tomato vine, I don't know. Anyway, you go out and you pick a tomato. And let's say it's the first one of the season. And it's big and red and plump and juicy. And you pick it. You don't think, well, that was an anomaly. Like, that's never going to happen again. Like, that's, there'll never be another tomato forever. Like, that's the only one that there will ever be. Like, you don't think that, right? You pick it off there and you say, oh, it's going to be a good harvest, right? This is going to be a great crop. Why? Because this is the evidence of more to come, right? And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, 
this Jesus getting up again, and, and Jesus got up again, right? I mean, it wasn't that Jesus' ghost came out of the tomb, right? And they saw his ghost. Now, he was different than he was before. I mean, he did some different stuff that he never did before his crucifixion, but like his body wasn't in the tomb anymore, right? His, his body was not in the tomb anymore, and that's incredibly important, right? His body wasn't there anymore. And Paul says, this is the first fruits. This is the evidence of what's to come. There's going to be more exactly like this. Just like when you pick a tomato or you pick a piece of corn out of the harvest, you say there's more to come that's going to be just like this. This is the first of many to follow. And that's exactly Paul's point. That Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And again, his entire argument here revolves around this. Because apparently the church wasn't denying the resurrection of Jesus. They were just denying or beginning to toy with the idea. Or there were some people there teaching that there wasn't going to be a future bodily resurrection of everybody. And Paul says, that can't be true. And to accept that means you have to accept that Christ wasn't raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, then our faith is futile. There's no point in doing what we're doing. If that's true, you're still in your sins. All of this stands or falls on resurrection. And everywhere Paul went, by the way, when he was standing before the Sanhedrin, that was one of his tricks to get the Sadducees and the Pharisees mad at each other because that was one of their, uh, their feuds, was the Sadducees didn't believe in a coming resurrection and the Pharisees did. And so he brought that up to the Sanhedrin. But he also brought that up when he went to Athens and he was on Mars Hill and he's preaching to these pagans, these idol worshipers, these non-Jewish people that don't have this background. You know what he wanted to talk about? Resurrection. And that's kind of where he lost everybody. And everybody's like, okay, that's weird. You know, I don't know about this stuff anymore. This is, this is pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? But Paul says our entire faith rests on this. And it would be unbelievable. It would be unbelievable. Let's face it. It would be unbelievable because dead people don't get up. Dead people don't rise again. When somebody's dead, they're dead. And Paul said, except for that's not always the case. With Jesus, that wasn't the case. And Jesus died and he was buried and he rose from the dead. And our entire faith not only stands or falls on that, but that, that his resurrection is the first fruits of what's to come. That there's going to be a future resurrection of the dead, of the dead people, of all people. Jesus himself said that he would raise up and would judge the, the righteous and the wicked, right? That there would be a resurrection. And that wasn't a unique idea to them. The Jews of, of again, that was one of the debates between Pharisees and Sadducees. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man came, come, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now again, he's not, there's like no metaphor here. Sometimes there's like a metaphor about like dead and living and spiritually dead or, you know, I mean, so we can talk about all that in, in different passages about, you know, metaphors about being dead even while you're alive. But, but here, there's no metaphor. There's no figure of speech. I mean, he's being very literal, right? He's saying, as by a man came death, everybody dies. 
right? And we understand that. And everybody understands that this ultimately is the fate of humanity. And Paul says, at his coming, those who belong to Christ will be raised up to live. Now, in this passage, he doesn't really deal with judgment of the wicked. That, that's true, but Paul isn't really dealing that with that in this context. He's saying everybody who belongs to Jesus will be raised up to life. And, and that is at the very core of the Christian hope. And, and again, to go back to our overarching theme here of meekness, how can the meek embrace a life of blessedness if their meekness ends in death? Because has meekness ended in death for many people? Yes. Jesus ultimately is the example of that, right? Jesus is an example of meekness that ended in death. And, but except it wasn't the end. God raised him from the dead. And through his death and resurrection, the meek one brings life to all of us who are striving to trust God in that same sort of way. And to be that gentle and trusting and to endure the present in light of the future. And how could this group, this multitude, not just locally and not just globally but historically all of God's people throughout all time who have been stoned and sawn in two and killed with the sword and crucified and burned and drowned and every other way that they could be killed that has been their fate how could they be blessed because Paul says Jesus says the gospel says at his coming, those who belong to him will be raised to life. Verse 24. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is what, church? Death. Yes. Death does not win. Death cannot win. And isn't that what Jesus said? When Jesus was teaching this radical meekness stuff, this turn the other cheek stuff, this love your enemy stuff, when Jesus was teaching that, don't you know the overwhelming feeling would be what? You tell somebody who's living in oppression, in occupied Roman territory, who lives under the heel of the Roman Empire, within their generation and lifetime, Jerusalem would be torn down and burned to ash. And Jesus tells those people, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, don't go a mile, go two, turn the other cheek, what would be the overwhelming feeling? Fear? Wouldn't you be afraid? How can I live like that? I was thinking about joining forces with these zealots over here because that sounded like a pretty good idea. Grab some swords and spears and defend ourselves against these Roman guys. Take back our country. Take back our city. Take back our kingdom. And Jesus says, love your enemies. And, and then he says, but, but why? Because you don't have to fear those who kill the body. Only the one who has the authority to destroy both body and soul in hell. But the Romans don't have that authority. All they could do is kill your body. But Jesus has authority over death. 
Jesus has the power of life. Jesus will destroy every single last enemy of God, including the last enemy, which is death itself. Jesus will destroy death. He will undo death. I always like to say that there's two kinds of happy endings in, in every fairy tale or story that you watch. One kind of happy ending is where the bad guy just dies or gets imprisoned or captured or something, and the bad stuff just stops happening. And, you know, and sometimes that's all we can get, right? The bad guy is stopped. Thank you. Good. No more pain. No more suffering from that guy because that guy's in jail. No more of that stuff. But the damage has been done, right? And there's no fixing the damage. But there are other kinds of stories where all of the bad stuff not only stops happening, it comes undone. It's reversed. And that's exactly what kind of story is true. That's exactly the kind of story that is the good news story. That all of the evil and all of the wickedness and all of the darkness and death itself has already, not just future, it is future, but in a sense it's present. Why? Because it's already begun with whom? With Jesus. It's already begun. God has already begun the resurrection with Jesus so you can know that it's true. You can know that it's true, not only for him, but for us, and that the last enemy, death, will itself be destroyed, and that all of Jesus' people will be raised to live. So again, there's just no way, given the words and the way that Paul is describing this, that we're simply talking about becoming a non-physical being and just die and just, that's it, and there's no resurrection. There's a resurrection, I mean, we could talk about, you know, well, where does your spirit go when you die? And Paul seems to believe that he'll be with the Lord and that it'll be better even with the Lord. But that sort of in-between time, like if I die right now and then Jesus comes back 100 years from now, I hope it's next week, but, you know, 100 years from now or whatever, that time in between, you know, where is my spirit then? With the Lord. But the Bible just doesn't talk a lot about that time. I mean, we want to know about that time and we think about that time because we lose people that we love and we like to think about where's their spirit. But the main emphasis on, no, 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 what I want to talk about is what about forever? Like, what about the end of the story? Like, what's really coming? Like, what's really our hope? And our real hope, our solid hope, is resurrection, is stand up again, and death All of the pain it's caused, it all comes unraveled and undone and is reversed and death itself is destroyed when all of God's people come back to life. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, he says a few just interesting things in this chapter. Now, like, we don't know... Now, Paul, are you saying you actually fought beasts? Like, were you thrown into a pit and, like, you fought beasts at Ephesus? That's possible, right? I mean, Paul went through a lot of stuff already by this time. And he could have been thrown in with some lions and had to fight them. I don't, I don't know if that happened or if he's just talking hypothetically, right? If he's just saying, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus and I'm willing to do that, like, I'm willing to be thrown in with the lions. Why? Why would I do that? Why would, I, why would I allow that to happen to myself? 
Why not just say, forget it, never mind, this whole Jesus thing, bad idea, never mind, not a Christian, I'm walking away from it. Why wouldn't I say that? Why would I allow myself to be thrown in with the lions if the dead are not raised? If the dead are not raised, then let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? If this is all there is, forget this Christian stuff, forget working so hard and being beaten and stoned and hated and thrown into a pit of lions. I just forget it, all of this. Let's just, let's just have a party because we're going to die anyway. So what difference does it make? Paul's being sarcastic, right? I mean, he's saying, that's not true. The dead are raised. And that's why I'm willing to fight wild beasts. That's why I'll go to my death. That's why, that's why I do this. That's why I proclaim this. That's why I believe this. That's why I do everything that I do because I believe that Jesus will destroy every enemy, the last enemy being death, and that Jesus will raise up all of his people. Now he says this, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, like I love that. When I was a youth minister, I used that, that passage like all the time. Like, hey kids, don't hang out with bad kids because bad company ruins good morals. And that, you know, I mean, that's true, right? You hang out with bad kids, you might end up being a bad kid. But that would be weird if that's what he was talking about, right? In context, what's the bad company in context? In context, the bad company is people that say that there is no resurrection. That's the bad company, right? All these people that are telling you there's no bodily resurrection, that's bad company. And you need to stop hanging out with them. Why? Because it ruins good, what? Morals. Ruins good morals? I mean, it's fun to talk about where are we going to go when we die and what's the future hold, but what difference does it really make in practical, real life? Paul says every difference in the world. You start believing this stuff, that there's no resurrection of the dead, and your hope for all of the dead who have died, it's just kind of some wishy-washy, kind of vague, abstract idea, like, yeah, I guess, you know, it's better, and they're in a better place. You know, it's just wishy-washy, or you just don't really know, and you're like, I, I just, who knows what happens after we die? I mean, you know, who knows? We've never been there. Who knows? If that's sort of your idea, it's going to show in your life. Paul says, I live the way I live. I'm the man that I am. I do what I do and believe what I believe and say what I say and go where I go and sacrifice what I sacrifice and suffer what I suffer. Why? Because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Paul would say that over and over and over again, everywhere he went, everywhere he preached. That's why he did not just Jesus' resurrection, but he believed that he would be raised. Imagine, imagine if there were a group of people who were so devoted to doing good and so unafraid of dying because they believed that they could not die. That they truly believed that once they died, eventually they'd come back to life. Not some, you know, vague idea of the afterlife. We all have an idea of the afterlife, and that's good. That's fine. But we have this solid, concrete idea that just like Jesus walked out of the tomb, we too will be raised to live forever. And Paul says that affects your morals. That affects how you live. If this isn't true, then just eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to die, and who knows what's after that. If you believe these people, he's saying, that are coming to you and saying these things, then 
that will eventually corrupt your morals. Look at verse 42. I know we're skipping quite a bit, but for the sake of time. So, so is it with the resurrection of the dead that what is sown is perishable. Now, now here's we get in. Now, we've talked sort of about how our future body is connected to our present body in that when this body dies, eventually it will be raised. But it's also different. And Paul says it's different. It's not just like it is now. It will be changed. What is sown is perishable, like a seed, you know? It's sown, and when something grows from it, it's, it's different. It came from that. It's connected to it, but it's different. And he says, what's sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So, Look at those contrasts for just a second, and I kind of put them on the next slide for this. So old body versus new body. He says perishable versus what? Imperishable. And we know that about this body, right, that it's perishable. It's in a state of decay, every single one of us. And we can deny it as long as we want to, and, you know, we can put makeup on it, and we can give ourselves as many pills as we possibly can, and we can try to, you know, extend it as long as we can, and I'm not making fun of that in the least. It's a tragedy, that we are perishable. We are disconnected from the tree of life and we live in perishable bodies and it hurts. It hurts in every way to watch that happening. Even when a new baby comes into the world and we celebrate and we say, yes, new life and it's so wonderful and exciting. There'll be those little moments where you think, but then they're gonna grow and then these things are gonna happen and we start to realize that we are perishable. But Paul says when we're raised, our new body will be imperishable. It will not decay. It will be incorruptible. It won't get old. It won't hurt. It won't, it won't die. Uh, then he says dishonor versus glory, right? The, the anav are dishonored. They, they die in dishonor. Jesus died like a criminal on a cross. And in, in a lot of ways, everyone who dies dishonor, but raised up to be glorious, not just what they look like. I don't think Paul's talking about what we look like. He's talking about we're raised up to be rulers, kings and queens, royalty, to rule with Jesus, raised in glory, sown in weakness versus raised in power. These bodies are weak and our new bodies will be powerful. Then in chapter 15 and verse 53, he talks about mortal versus immortal. These bodies are mortal. They will die. Our new body will be immortal. So sometimes when we talk about resurrection, people are like, well, I don't, like, I don't want this body. Like, I don't want to look like this forever, and I don't want to feel like this forever, and I don't want to hurt like this forever. You won't. Our resurrection body will be connected to this one in some way, just as Jesus' resurrection body was connected to his previous crucified body, but he was changed. He was different, imperishable, glorious, powerful, immortal. And then he uses these phrases natural and spiritual. Some translations might unfortunately say physical and spiritual. What's interesting is that the word natural there, the, the, the root word is psuche, which we usually translate as soul. So when he says natural, and that's a whole long study, but it means kind of soulish. And then he says spiritual. He doesn't mean physical and non-physical like you can't see it. Like Jesus' body, you could see. It was a body, right? He was bodily raised. He means when Paul uses the word 
spiritual, Paul almost always means God's spirit, empowered, from, empowered by or from God's spirit. Our, our, this body is natural. It came from dirt and procreation, and it's just natural, right? It's a natural, mortal, weak, dishonorable, perishable body. But our new body, this body will be changed into one that is spiritual, empowered by and from the spirit. I wish we could talk more about that, but we can't. Verse 49. Just as we've been born the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, and again, when Paul talks about flesh, he's talking about weakness. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We, we, it's almost like we, we have human body 1.0, and, and then we're going to get an upgrade, human body 2.0, right? We already have the software in the spirit, and, and eventually we'll get the, the hardware upgrade, right? You know what I'm saying? That's exactly the kind of sort of thing he's talking about. That's not my analogy, but I really like that metaphor. Because that's exactly what, we already have the spirit, but eventually our bodies, our mortal bodies will be redeemed. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ therefore here's where we got to get to therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast be immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain even if they stone you or saw you in two or kill you with the sword or throw you to the beasts at Ephesus, your labor is not in vain because death is swallowed up in victory. So we might say that not only are the meek blessed because they will inherit the earth, but we might say, according to Paul here, blessed are the meek for they shall be raised to life. Inheriting the earth implies being raised to life because in Christ, death is swallowed up in victory. Let's pray. Father, we, we embrace these things, these truths, this hope by faith. And we pray, Father, that you help us to walk by faith, to be meek, to endure the present in light of the future, to embrace future rewards uh, as if they are a present reality because in so many ways they are in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church.